Hello, and welcome to Represent the Podcast, the show where I, Katie Beth McKinney, sit down with composers from historically marginalized and underrepresented backgrounds and discuss their works for the horn. Hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Represent the Podcast. I am your host, Katie Beth McKinney, and today I have a horn player, composer, researcher, educator, Micah Redden with me. And I'm so excited because we are friends who went to school together back in the day. So this is a lot of fun for me. So welcome, Micah. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's so much fun to be able to reconnect with friends, old, old, old colleagues. <laughs> I know. It's been so long. <laughs> I think it's been about six years since I left Indiana. That sounds about right, which is a horrifying amount of time. But woo, here gosh, we are. Time, time flies so fast when it's you're the, having fun, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> when you're surviving, <laughs> when you are right. making ends meet. Oh my gosh. Right. So um, we'll dive right in. But uh, first, I want to get started with how did you get started in music and in composition? Oh my God, that's such a loaded question. I know. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, how did I get started in music? Um, do you want the very beginning or do you want like the practical answer? Oh um, no, give me the whole thing. The very beginning. So I started... I guess you could say, you know, elementary school music class. Um, I really loved. It was one of my favorite subjects. I say one of because at the time my true love was was fine arts. Um, from a very young age, I wanted to be an art teacher, and that was my dream un- until I I discovered how how happy music made me. Oh. Um, but. You know, um, I sang in elementary school in the choirs and the uh, Mustang Corral at Middletown Elementary School. Yes, <laughs> for fourth and fifth graders. What voice type are you? A tenor, like oh. a tenor one, like very <laughs> the star <laughs> my, of the show. <laughs> the star of the show. My low range, like it's embarrassing. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm teaching oral skills right now and I'm like okay I'm gonna transpose this up an octave um (laughs) amazing yeah it's great time um anyway so I you know I just music was just like a a part of the fun that I had as a young adolescent um and then we get to middle school and of course uh, I hated gym class and the alternative to gym gym class was was band so um there was a day in sixth grade pretty early on in the year where the band teachers came to the gym class and made the announcement, hey, if you're interested in band, um, come to the band room on such and such day after school and try out some instruments and, you know, see what you're good at and see if you want to join band. And at this point, I was really only interested in joining band to get out of the gym. <laughs> because I hated gym. Um, I hated gym more than I loved music. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. Um, so anyway, fast forward, the day comes. My mom takes me uh, to the after school band tryout a thon. And at the time, I was dead set on playing the saxophone. And I am not embarrassed at all to say that my family were super fans of Kenny G. So <laughs> we 
had Kenny G on the radio all the time and the sound of his sweet soprano and mm-hmm. um it's I don't know, it was just part of my family culture and so like I was gonna be a saxophone player obviously to be just like Kenny G and I say that completely ironically that was the dream was the goal was to the have dream. the Kenny G hair too that was like part of the package right I, I unfortunately was not blessed with curly hair, but but yes, that was, you know, a perm was in my future. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Um, so we get to the tryouts and I say, I want to play the saxophone. And so they, they hand me one and say, okay, like just literally just like put your mouth around this thing and just like blow into it. And so I took a deep breath and I blew into it and... Katie Beth, not a single sound came out. <laughs> okay. Of the I think saxophone. Our, I think our villain origin stories here as horn players are exactly the same because I had the same experience with the clarinet. I wanted to play clarinet and I could not make a reed work to save my life. Could not do it. <laughs> not even a squeak. You no, know? nothing. Not nothing. So <laughs> I, you know. I tried a couple of times and after several failed attempts, they were like, okay, this is like not the vibe for you. (laughs) Um, So they said, okay, well, like, can you blow raspberries? And so they demonstrated a raspberry. (laughs) And I was like, "Uh, yeah, duh, 11 years old, fart noises. I've (laughs) got it down. Pro level, pro level. So they handed me a trumpet and told me to blow raspberries into the mouthpiece and I did and of course it made a sound and they were like you're a trumpet player and I was like oh god I this is <laughs> not what I had in mind but if it'll get me out of gym I'm sure sure I'll be a trumpet player I was so bad at the trumpet like I was bad for an 11 year old beginner sixth grader <laughs> like I was just I was bad. I didn't understand the concept of like changing the notes with your lips. You know, I understood that there are keys on this thing, you know, valves on this thing. I should be able to just change the notes with those. And as a brass player, you know that that is not the case. (laughs) So I struggled for several months with the trumpet and was getting pretty bored. Um, So one day they brought out this uh, weird looking case that was just super awkward and they opened it opened it up to reveal this very shiny swirly with a very big bell at the end <laughs> this strange dr seuss looking sort of instrument right and they say this is the french horn and i was like I don't know what it does, what it sounds like, but it's beautiful and I have to play it. So I was like, <laughs> me, me, pick me. And they were like, you literally cannot play an arpeggio on the trumpet. So like horns probably not like going to be a great fit for you. So um, I was so upset and so petty that um I had my mom write a note to the band demanding that I be allowed to play the French horn. And I'm sure I like made up some like excuse of being like, oh, this is the whole reason like I wanted to join band, which was like not true. I just like, (laughs) you know, was 11 and wanted my way, you know. You had to do what you had to do. (laughs) 
yeah so they came they caved in and they said okay fine you can play the french horn and it didn't go terribly it was working out kind of fine um so i did that for the rest of sixth grade and then and through seventh grade i got into the to the wind ensemble which was like a pretty big deal at my middle school mm-hmm. um but you know i was a saxophonist at heart and <laughs> i really wanted to play the saxophone so they wouldn't let me switch obviously because a, sa- a, horn, a horn player is more valuable than a saxophone player so hate to break it to you saxophonist sorry y'all yeah <laughs> For in, in terms of like public school music education, a horn player is worth ten saxophone players. Or <laughs> I don't know. Um, but they did let me borrow a saxophone from the school. It was this old, ancient, moldy—I'm sure like 1920s, 1930s—Busher alto saxophone. You open the case, oh. and we're just immediately hit in the face with like this, like overwhelming small mold didn't care went out my mom made my mom take me to the music store bought me like one of those like $20 Yamaha plastic mouthpieces mm-hmm. a box of reeds um, and this was like at the very beginning of the internet um, this was before Google you know I think it was Ask Jeeves I was time. gonna say was it back in the Ask Jeeves era <laughs> so I went onto the I you know, um, dialed up, dialed in right. my dial up internet, um, went to my search engine and I just typed in um, like saxophone fingering chart. And I came across this website uh, that I think was called woodwindfingerings.org or something. <laughs> and I printed out a fingering chart and I proceeded to teach myself to play the saxophone using this fingering chart, uh, a tuner, which I already had, um, it just like you know just like practice and learn on my own so in eighth grade it comes time for uh district band and i was like you know i feel like i've gotten pretty good at the saxophone so i'm gonna try out i'm gonna tell my band director that i want to try out on both horn and saxophone for district band and she was like you're insane kids don't <laughs> do that and i was like well i am insane and i do that so um <laughs> So she let me do it, and I ended up making first chair on both after just, like, teaching myself to play the saxophone. So that was the point where I, like, started to realize that, like, music was, like, came pretty naturally to me in terms of just, like, I just, like, I just, like, got it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't I, I don't know how how else to explain it, but I was like, this is like I wouldn't say it was easy for me, but it was like compared to like gym was very easy <laughs> right. for me. So um, that summer, the summer between my seventh and eighth grade, uh, sorry, the summer between my eighth and ninth grade years, I attended a jazz camp at uh, Shenandoah University on the saxophone, oh, where I would. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, nestled in the Shenandoah Valley, Winchester, Beautiful Virginia. Beautiful little spot. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, but at this jazz camp, I met my, who would become my saxophone teacher, Dr. Adrian Ray. Shout out to Dr. Oh. Ray. Yay, shout out. <laughs> and 
you know, for me, the rest was kind of history because jazz saxophone became my primary focus. And at this point, I was like, I'm never looking at a French horn ever again. I'm sorry, this story is very convoluted. I'm enjoying it, honestly. And this is stuff I didn't know about you. I had no idea you were ever a saxophonist. So I'm living for this. <laughs> oh, girl, I was a diehard saxophonist. Like, I, my Chicago Symphony was to be the lead alto of the Airmen of No jazz band, the Air Force jazz sure. band. Mm-hmm. Like, big band was my passion. Um, mm-hmm. And playing lead alto and... It was just, it was, I loved it with every fiber of my being, playing the saxophone and playing jazz and, and I hated the French horn. God, I hated (laughs) it so much. I mean, don't we all sometimes? (laughs) It was such an unforgiving instrument and you, and I had to like practice it in a way that I didn't have to practice the saxophone. I mean, I practiced the saxophone. It was my life. Mm-hmm. But the saxophone was just so much more um, instantly gratifying than the horn. I have a very dear friend who says that the saxophone is the easiest instrument to learn, but the hardest to master. Absolutely. And there's, if there's like the learning curve is so different than the horn where it's so hard to like get started. And then once you get it, you know, you can make progress. But yeah, I understand. Absolutely. I completely <laughs> agree. So um, I'm in my freshman year of high school. I'm a jazz saxophone player. I make it into the jazz band as a as a freshman, which was unheard of. Um, we had a super competitive jazz program. I mean, and to put this a little bit into perspective, like I come from a very, very small sort of school system. Um, my school, my high school had a jazz band, two wind ensembles, and that was it. There was no mm. orchestra. There was no strings program. There was just like David Holsinger and big band. And that was, you know, <laughs> that, that was it. And that, was, that was what you did. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, of course, marching band, which everybody had to do. Um, and um, so I was desperate to not play the French horn when it came to concert season. Well, my band director informed me that, you know, we have, 8,000 saxophonists it was really like it was really like <laughs> six but in a in a band of of 80 six is a lot it's mm-hmm. a high percentage <laughs> six is plenty six is plenty <laughs> um so uh, I think 80 is being generous I think that might have actually been the biggest we ever were um he said you can play anything but the saxophone. So I chose the bassoon, Katie Beth. I chose to play the bassoon. And I played that bassoon wow. for a year. And I was so bad. I <laughs> I got first chair at district band by default. There were only two of us. So that <laughs> so the only that only meant that the person who got second chair was just slightly worse than me. Um and I became eligible to audition for all state because I was first year at district band. So I went to this all state audition and heard like real bassoon players. And I had forgotten my music and I um, asked a person, one of the other players to borrow their music for my audition. And she was the only person that I beat. <laughs> I was, oh no. I know I was second <laughs> to last. I was so, oh. so, I was so bad. I mean, you know, I tried my, 
woodwindfingerings.org. You know, I got a bassoon fingering chart and with a tuner and like taught myself to play the bassoon, which is not really as possible with the bassoon as it is with the saxophone, just saying bassoon is a, right. a much and were you making your own reads no or... i didn't even know so okay good so, at, <laughs> so this all-state audition was my first experience seeing kids who had made their reads and i thought it was the stupidest thing i was like why <laughs> would you make your own read you can literally just go to the music store and buy a plastic one which is one that i'm using <laughs> yes we love a plastic bassoon plastic bassoonery um you know like it didn't make sense to me why you would make one um Mm -hmm. I was bad at the bassoon so my sophomore year my bassoon was in the shop when concert season started so my only other option was to play the French horn like pull the French horn back out of the case and like play it for a couple of weeks while my bassoon was being repaired um in the concert band because you couldn't just be in jazz band you had to also mm-hmm. be in in wind ensemble or symphonic band and so i was like okay fine i'll just like do this for a couple of weeks it won't be that bad well we were playing um some pretty cool music and like the horns had like not off beats whoa and i was like this is kind of not terrible so mm-hmm. i was like okay uh I went to my band director and I was like "Mm, okay fine like I'll play the horn in the wind ensemble but like just so we're both clear saxophone is my main gig don't ask any questions just like let it happen okay so I never practiced (laughs) the horn it was just like I showed up picked it up played it in band like that was the extent of my horn education so Super fast forward to my senior year of high school, I've decided that I'm going to be a music educator. Um, I'm going to go to school for music, going to go to school to, to learn how to teach a band, right? And so my band director was like, well, since you're going for music ed, you should audition on horn and saxophone to show them that you are like versatile in brass and woodwind and that like might give you a scholarship or like which is like not how scholarships work I didn't know that I was 17 you know I didn't know so I um at the time we had a student teacher who was a horn player but who was like a real horn player who was like in college taking horn lessons (laughs) and so I like went to him and I was like hey like what do I play And he introduced me to the Mozart concertos and the Strauss concertos. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, um, IMSLP was not a thing yet. So I like um, begged my mom to buy me the um, Shermer edition of the four horn concertos, the famous one. The one we all start on. Yes. Every single one of us. All in F, Mm -hmm. you know. Yep. And then um, I think I got the Strauss concerto from a friend in band, a horn player who was was taking horn lessons at the time. And I was just like, okay, so I'll just like play these. I'm like, you know, I'll play through them a couple times, blah, 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 whatever. So college audition season comes and I audition on both instruments and I get in on both instruments to the four schools wow. that I applied to, which was kind of a shock to me um didn't really know what that meant 
Um, but here's where the story gets really, really funny. So I'm still, sorry, there's a mat I'm swatting away at. <laughs> no, <you're fine. laughs> it's not my hallucinations, I promise. Um, <laughs> um, so this is where the story gets really funny because it's still my every intention to like be an all a rock star, all-star jazz saxophone player with the fallback degree of, you know, music ed. I could be a band director if this doesn't work out. So the school that I chose to go to, Virginia Commonwealth University, I chose because they had a legendary jazz program. Um, and I was, that was gonna make my dreams come true. Um, my audition mm -hmm. on the other hand was a little weird because um, I had scheduled two auditions or I scheduled two auditions for one day. And upon learning that I was gonna audition on horn, the horn teacher reached out to me, Dr. Patrick Smith, he's still there. And he said, Aww. hey, come down for a private lesson and a tour and we can do like a private audition. It'll be really low key. And mm -hmm. it was like the first time I was ever gonna have a horn lesson. This was in like uh, January or February of my senior year of high school. So really, really close to the end. And so I went down and I had my first ever horn lesson and I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. Um, I did not know, it was my first time hearing a horn played professionally. And I was like, mm -hmm. I didn't know the horn could sound like this beautiful. This is kind of neat. So I played my audition and then my saxophone audition wasn't for like another month. So oh, wow. um, a month later, my mom and I drive down to VCU and show up for my saxophone audition. I have my saxophone with me. And I go up to the check-in counter and they were like, you don't have an audition today. And I was like, I literally do have an audition today. And I think I had like, smartphones weren't a thing or at least I didn't have one. I mean, this is what, 2007, no. 2008, early 2008. Oh yeah, absolutely not. We were on the razors still, I think back then, right? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, uh, if we were lucky. <laughs> If we were lucky, I never had one. I had a rumor, the little slidey texty phone. Yeah. Anyways. Oh, <laughs> uh, I think I had like a little Nokia thing. Anyway, so the point being, I had like, I had like printed out the email because that's what you did to show people the email that you got is you printed it out on paper right. because we're dinosaurs. And so I showed oh, yeah, them. Back when we had to like print out directions to drive too, for the youngins who don't know, MapQuest. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. Oh my god. So I showed her this email and she was like, oh, that's weird. So she like did some digging and they had canceled that audition on my behalf because they had re re recorded or they had I had already done an audition and they thought, oh, it's like saxophone thing must just like be a mistake. Right. So I'm there with a saxophone. And they have no saxophone auditions that day. So the saxophone teacher is not there. And oh, no. the woodwind faculty had already gone home because there were no more woodwind auditions left. So I play mm -hmm. my saxophone audition and I say this with love for Dr. Patrick <laughs> Smith, the horn teacher <laughs> and the brass faculty. And I played <laughs> the shit out of the Creston Sonata. I... It was my thing, it was, you know, and I didn't really have any perspective about what an audition was supposed to be like. And since my first audition was private and casual, I just showed up in like jeans. 
And I remember <laughs> the college band director, Dr. Carrie Austin, legend, um, said to me, you know, when you walked in here, based on the way you're dressed, I had no idea that you could play like that. And that will always <laughs> stick with me because first impressions matter. They oh, absolutely. They really matter. And I, you know, I didn't know. Um, so, um, and then that same day, I have my uh, music education interview for the music ed program. Um, so it's late March, early April, something. Uh, letters are being sent out, and I received my letter from VCU, and it says, "You congratulations, you've been accepted." Uh, to the music education program. No mention of an instrument, not a single mention. So I assume like the other colleges that I'd gotten into that mm -hmm. I could just like pick. So in my mind, I'm picking the saxophone. Right. So I choose VCU, I'm picking the saxophone. I show up, orientation day. I look at all my paperwork and it says French horn on it. Oh my gosh. It says French horn on it. And I'm like, there has been a grave clerical error. So I'm doing the emailing um, and I email Dr. Smith and I'm like, this is a mistake. And, you know, he's very reassuring. He's like, well, you know, your music ed. So like you can take lessons on both. It doesn't really like matter what your primary instrument is. And I was like, I mean, like, I, I guess you're right, but this just like feels <laughs> wrong, but like, mm -hmm. fine. I didn't hate my first horn lesson. And, you know, I mm -hmm. was music ed and I liked, you know, by this point I had learned uh, all the jazz auxiliaries like flute and clarinet. Um, I had like a, a little love affair with the oboe for a second <laughs> so like you know like it, it would like make sense right it wasn't completely mm -hmm. out of the realm of uh, uh i don't know possible logic yeah. you know <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> <laughs> um and he was like but don't worry so like if you hate it you can switch in the spring we'll just like figure it out it'll be fine and i gotta tell you by the end of that first semester, I was so in love with the horn Aww. that it was just like, it was it. That was it for me. That was it for me. And after a semester of being in music ed, a semester of taking horn lessons, in the spring semester, I switched my degree to horn performance. And that is how I sort of got here. It's like you the asked happiest accident. <laughs> Yes, composition you is the, the next step, yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to be here for seven hours. You know, I don't um, <laughs> Composition was a lot more, uh, a lot, a lot simpler. I learned um, through, so I had a, a geography project in eighth grade that I had to do where we had to pick a culture, we were assigned a culture and we had to assigned a country and we had to like give a presentation on like part of the culture and and me and my uh partner were assigned ireland Ooh. and we were both in band and mm -hmm. she played the flute and i played everything right um and she was like let's play some like irish songs but like i said the internet was in is in its infancy mm -hmm. and it's not like i could just like go online and google like oh like irish sheet music so I was like, well, I'll just like, I guess, write something. 
okay. that sounded Irishy. I don't know. So I like <laughs> went to the music store and like bought staff paper and just like wrote like a duet for flute and I think I played on the saxophone, something in the Irish style, what I considered to be the Irish style. <laughs> right. Take that with a grain of salt, <laughs> half of a grain of salt. <laughs> um but it, I don't know, it kind of like sparked something in me. I was like, oh, this is exciting. Like creating music is exciting. And so my band director, this is in middle school, we've gone back in time a little bit, had told me about a program called Finale Notepad that was free and you could download it off the uh, World Wide Web. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that download took like eight days <laughs> and hogged up the phone line. Oh, yes. There was, there was such a thing as... Uh, what was it called? Cable link? Oh, I Internet have no idea. By this point. I lived in we the country. We, we were just... straight up dial up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. We just, we just had the dial up. So I downloaded Finale Notepad. I didn't know anything about music theory. I didn't know anything about anything. I would just like put notes on the staff and it would like, you could play back what you put on the staff and it became sort of like a therapy for me. Oh. And it was really cool because I was like, I was creating music and that was really exciting. Um, I was doing this with absolutely no intention of it ever being played. That was like, you know, I was just making, it was just like a game for me, kind of. And so this really like, <laughs> the word that I like to use is festered. This sort of like, <laughs> this passion just like festered in me, like <laughs> ate me alive. For years and years and years and years until I was like almost all the way through my undergrad degree and I was like still like writing music that I would never play for anybody and never have anybody play. Um, I did have my band director read through something that I wrote in high school and that was magical and he told me that if I like made like good parts like did like good engraving which I didn't know what that word meant or like mm-hmm. making parts didn't know, really know what that meant I'm pretty sure I just gave everybody a copy of the score um <laughs> that we would play it but I you know I never did that um so it, it never actually came to fruition but but so like I wrote my first quintet woodwind quintet in was it my soft it was for my junior recital I wrote it for my junior recital and that's how three colors came to be I wrote that for my junior recital in college and hearing that come to life in real time you know instead of just like the finale playback was I was like wow this is it it did something to me you know it and it, it and it wasn't so much about like wow I made this and now people get to hear it it was just like writing for me was always it was like it was like a diary a musical diary and getting to share that part of myself with other people in the same way that I heard it in my head was transformational mm-hmm. so very shortly after that I wrote and and published um uh Shenandoah mm-hmm. and I wrote that for 
IHS, our studio went to IHS in Denton, Texas. I don't remember which one that was. Oh, I that was, was there. Yeah, I was at TCU oh, at the nice. time. So that was super next door for us. So that's crazy. We crossed paths and didn't even know it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I just started, you know, I wrote more and more and more throughout my just like journey as a musician. And, you know, I, I eventually came to the realization that there was just like, part of my voice that could not be fulfilled just playing the horn mm -hmm. or at least so, so I thought at the time so mm -hmm. um much shorter story with composition was a lot more experimental and and deeply personal mm -hmm. deeply deeply personal so even to this day when I write things it's it always comes from a place of um just like deep reflection and I feel like that sounds like really cliche and no. obnoxious not but, at all you know you know I had a very um not to get too personal on a public public podcast but I had a very troubled uh adolescence mm -hmm. um I came from a very unstable home um we moved a lot not by desire we moved out of necessity and um money was was not secure and and the way that I sort of like coped I mean I was the oldest sibling by eight years yeah. of three baby babies mm -hmm. and you know I had a mom who who really really did her best and she was as supportive as she could be but she she had her own demons that she was battling and so you know I felt like a lot of times like I was the glue mm -hmm that really helped hold the family together, but I was like her best friend. Mm -hmm. And so the way that I would cope was I would, I would write, especially um, after practice hours, you mm -hmm. know, when I, I couldn't be like wailing on my saxophone at two in the morning. So I would sit at my computer with finale notepad open and just like put stuff down. And, you know, that's really how I got through. And, and, to a great extent, composition is, is still very much that mm -hmm. for me. So sometimes I struggle with deciding what to write when I'm approached um, for a commission. And I, I asked a lot of questions like, well, what do you want it to sound like? And they're like, oh, well, no, we want, we, that's why we're coming to you. <laughs> right, <laughs> we, we want, want your voice. You, you to figure this mm -hmm. out. And I'm like, do you really want these like if you really want like what's inside of me <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know if you're ready for all that but like okay here you go um yeah so I would say that like performing and being a horn player and being a composer are, are very much equal for me in terms of of like my musical makeup as like a person um even though I don't compose nearly as much as I perform I think I think my compositions, I think as a composer, I'm just a little bit more, no, I don't, I don't know that guarded is the right word, but a little bit more protective mm -hmm. of my compositional voice because it is so much more personal mm -hmm. to me than my, my horn voice. Um, it's like, if I miss a note 
in a public performance, it's like not that big a deal, right? But if I like pour my soul into this composition and it's performed, if people don't like it, that would kill me. Right. <laughs> so since you compose from such a vulnerable place, is it hard letting your compositions go into like the published, you know, category? I mean, I imagine that would be maybe a little scary. Oh, absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely i mean and you'll notice most of the published stuff that i have are with the exception of like three colors they're arrangements mm-hmm. of other people's music right because those are like fun and i don't have to get as serious with those and you know i can you know just have fun with those but i have thousands of unpublished unpremiered just like music that i've wow. written that you know we'll never see the light of day and i will never say never <laughs> okay yeah yeah i'm gonna die and someone's no. gonna harper lee me oh my gosh <laughs> i mean <laughs> um no but yeah but yes yes the answer to your question is absolutely yes a thousand percent yeah i i really can imagine that it's 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 very soul-bearing to to express yourself in that way and then have anybody i feel like too much with composition people get so obsessed with the idea of whether something is good or you know will make it into the canon which these are all nonsense value judgments i mean i personally for years hated debussy that doesn't mean his music is bad and i have since come around after listening to lemaire but you know so uh, it's Lemaire will do that to you. Lemaire will do that to you. You know, Afternoon of a Fawn didn't do it for me, but Lemaire did. Um, sorry, flute players. So uh, <laughs> it's I'm just going to be the day where I just offend every other instrument besides the horn. Anyway, so um, yeah, I, I really think that it's very brave of you to to try and let go of that that fear as you you know let people perform your music because it's a gift that you're giving to all of us. I appreciate you for saying that. Thank you. Is that? I, letting go of fear I've learned is like the human condition mm-hmm. you know like it's just you just we just are so much better for it you know learning to live our lives without fear learning to mm-hmm. create without fear we you can't deserve the with to fear. live absolutely mm-hmm. not you honey you will <laughs> crash and burn every single time <laughs> every will. single time every single time you know and and learning to function from a state of fear is miserable mm-hmm. like i've given some really great performances when i've been terrified and let me tell you i didn't have an ounce of fun <laughs> it's not fun yes. mm-hmm. you know and it really like music is supposed to be fun and it's supposed to be healing and you know i am not um a purist by any means who operates under the um assumption that music is the purpose of music is to serve the composer Mm -hmm. i think composers have great ideas and i think we should honor their ideas but i think there would be no music without the performer Mm -hmm. and i think the role of the performer is so important and um you know we contribute too we're we're the medium that gets the composer's ideas to the ears of the person listening and without that it's nothing more than than ink on a page really unless you have perfect pitch, absolutely I do not. so you know. i i do not know <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't like easier anyways no i completely agree with you it's 
it's about the the uh, for me, music is about the emotions I get when I hear it, when I play it. And when we let ourselves get so wrapped up in this has to be technically perfect. This has to be beyond criticism. That's where we run into the real dangers, I think. Um, and that's where you get people who burn out because totally. they can't reach that, you know, fake idea of perfection. Um, Absolutely. And I, I will be honest, I have almost quit so many times. I just had this conversation yesterday. Should I quit? <laughs> I mean, this, this goes on constantly being a freelancer yeah. for the record for everyone listening is hard you get exhausted and there's very little job security and you just have to keep going and in may and march and april when you're just want to take a nap and you can't <laughs> sometimes you question yeah. your life choices but we're here and we're doing it and we do it because we love it and that's the very real yeah. crux of the matter i think so the thought that i always come back to when i'm questioning if i should quit or not <laughs> is um I just remember like being 15 and really depressed and thinking about the things that I turned to to go on without you know being too dark and dramatic <laughs> and it was always music always mm -hmm. music and there were performers on those recordings or there were freelancers on the street that I heard that gave me joy and you know after my mom uh passed away in 2012 I had this real um existential moment about my relationship with music and you know being with her throughout her illness and in and out of hospitals with her you know I really started to question like what am I doing like I'm sitting here in this practice room which was actually my bedroom because I hate practice rooms mm -hmm. i love to practice i hate practice rooms. oh same like drilling scales and excerpts and mm -hmm. and and there's 80 people around you what? listening and, and, and yeah i hate that <laughs> and and you know i was like why am i doing this what does this matter you know when there are like people with cancer or starving children or you know like I really did not feel like at that point in my life that what I was doing like mattered to anybody um and then um I I had a really really great support system after my mom passed and lots of my friends from college came over and like would bring me treats or dinners and you know just to like cheer me up because I really compartmentalized that that part of my life um her funeral was on a friday and i was back in school on monday like getting ready for grad school auditions like mm -hmm. i did not want to think about it i wanted to just like be busy um and at the same time i was thinking about quitting music um to the to the point where i even um was uh applying for a degree change to go pre-med wow. and then um, I was signing up for the next semester classes of, for like biology and chemistry and orgo, uh, you know, all of that stuff. Um, and then my friend Martha came over, she was a trombone player. Um, and I was explaining all of this to her about how I was like going to quit music because it didn't mean anything and it didn't do anything for anybody. And she like, she like asked me, she said, well, what has it done for you? And I'm like, well, you know, music has saved my life in so many situations. And she was like, don't you think music saves 
other people's lives and that just like game changer blew my mind yeah like I'm getting like goosebumps remembering that moment wild and I was like you're so right you're so right music changes lives you know and I think we need to remind ourselves that at least that's my why Mm -hmm. um Jeff uh my um mentor former teacher uh current teacher mm-hmm. bff this would be jeff nelson um <laughs> jeff nelson <laughs> um always emphasizes the importance of like knowing your why mm-hmm. why you play and like my why is music changes lives it's not so much about whether i nail the excerpt or the solo or the performance or i am there with a purpose um and i'm not so like my ego isn't so inflated that i'm like i am here to change your life (laughs) i'm here on the possibility that you leave here feeling better you know i am on the stage playing the solo playing this excerpt whatever you know because it might make you feel better yeah and that's that's enough for me to keep going and I always come back to that because that's the role that music has always played in my life you know I think that's the most beautiful Um, thing I've heard in a while (laughs) and I needed to hear that today because you got me oh my gosh I'm like losing it a little bit over here no No, it's it's beautiful and that gives me a lot of joy to know that there's like people out in the world who remember why we do this and it's not all about you know which contractor has the most power in an area or you know all the all the stuff we get bogged down with when it comes down to it we're here for the music and we're here for how that can help yeah it's i'm in shackles Mm -hmm. to music i'm not i'm not going anywhere you know (laughs) and it's i mean that's unfortunately the life that i've like i say resigned myself to but like happily resigned myself to there could be no more work for me ever tomorrow Mm -hmm. and I would still find a way to play for people Mm -hmm. I mean and I I, and I've I've done it I've worked multiple jobs full-time non-musical jobs and still like performing is was still part of my life Mm -hmm. and you know, maybe that maybe that's like podcast episode part two <laughs> i know i'm thinking we're gonna have to have a series about this maybe um but i i you know it's, i tell this to some of my students who are thinking about going into music where i say if you can imagine yourself doing anything else go do that other thing because you have to absolutely want to be here to do this it is it's a hard field it's you know there's a lot of challenges but the ones who are are really here because they can't be anywhere else they're the ones who who make it you know and that's not to say they yeah. they can't go do music in other areas of their lives if they choose to go do something for money but you know it's it's right. yeah you have to it has to be your your love affair you know you you have to have to do it yes mm-hmm. you know there is no other alternative i have even i have tried <laughs> yeah to get out mm-hmm. you know i have tried other alternatives i i have to do this and the level at which that i do it does not matter right it doesn't matter how much i'm being paid it doesn't matter how much notoriety i get it you know i don't have to play in the chicago symphony or any orchestra or you know i just have to share music Ugh. 
I, I, you know, and, and I think in order to pursue a career in music, you have to like reconcile the reality of like, you might not have bill money Mm -hmm. playing music, right? You might have to do other things to do, but, but in those situations, and maybe this is an unchecked privilege of mine, but maybe in those situations, like, you're like, okay, fine. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll do other things. And I still have the energy, the bandwidth to also do music. Um, You know, and I, I feel very lucky that I've, continuously had that energy mm-hmm. um were there ever any days you know, where I, it was hard to pick up your horn because you were so worn out from everything else oh absolutely okay, when yeah. i <laughs> decided to yeah absolutely i mean yes yeah. when i decided to leave um my position i was fourth horn in the jalisco philharmonic orchestra mm-hmm. um in guadalajara mexico and there were lots of uh, there are lots of factors involved in my decision to leave, but ultimately my decision to leave like rocked my world mm-hmm. um, because I had been operating under the pretense that you get one shot at having a professional career in a full-time orchestra. And I had just decided to quit. I wasn't fired. I wasn't pressured. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, you know, and I, for um, very, very, very personal reasons decided to leave and I thought my career, my potential career was over. Mm-hmm. So um, at this point in time, the month shortly after I was considering a career in nonprofit management, because um, part of my passion as a musician is uh, getting music into the hands of people who don't feel like they deserve it. Um, and so I wanted to go into nonprofit management to figure out how to start my own mm-hmm. music related nonprofit. Um, and I couldn't even like look at my horn because it felt like I was so disappointed in myself, even though it was my decision to leave, I had like severe like remorse. Like, what have you just done? Mm-hmm. You know, you had a full time position playing your instrument and you quit, right. you just, you quit. And the reasons didn't matter. I mean, now it's been, what year is it? It's been six years. Yeah. It's been almost seven years since I made that decision to leave. And um, now I know that my reasons are valid and they matter. But of course, you know, things are musically going well for me now. So, you know, that hindsight is 2020 kind of thing. Yeah. You know, that certainly helps the perspective, but um. So like that period was like really a dark musical period for me. I didn't play for quite a while. Um, And then, you know, I moved from Mexico to Indianapolis with my husband, uh, which is where he is from. So it just made sense. You know, we lived in his dad's basement for several months, trying to put the pieces of our lives back together. And I actually uh, joined a community brass band um, because I had to have music back in my life mm-hmm. and nobody knew who I was and I wasn't getting paid work, but I was like, damn it, I'm going to play. So I reached out to the only horn player in town that I knew. I was like, Hey, I'm a horn player. <laughs> I want to play the horn. So anything you've got doesn't have to pay. Just, I'd like to do it. So I 
he was the director of the Indianapolis Brass Choir. This is Darren Sorley that I'm talking about. Oh. And he needed a horn player for one of his concerts. And so I joined for um, that cycle. And it was just so nice to get the horn back on my face again and to make music friends in an area that I had not known friends before. I mean, even though Bloomington, where I did my master's, was so close. Um, the School of Music isn't really integrated with the rest of Indiana, at least not in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, I had no friends in Indy. Right. I mean, there were some people still left at school, but. Yeah, because I think I was gone. Um, I, think, I was gone by the time you got back for sure. And yeah, so was I think Alyssa. Alyssa was still around. Oh, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Time. But she was around for like the rest of that semester. Right. As. Um, but anyway, also so shout was, out to our, our mutual friend and love, Alyssa Cherson, who is probably list- probably Alyssa listening to this Cherson. at some point. Miss you, Alyssa. Hope the Mets are winning. <laughs> <laughs> what is is that like a sports? Well, yeah. Remember, I did not do gym. <laughs> uh, see, neither did I. And then I got an Xbox, and now I'm a baseball fan. It's a whole story. Anyways, so- <laughs> oh my gosh, amazing. Um, yeah, I think one of the more difficult times to play my horn was when I was uh we were getting back on our feet and we were living in a studio apartment in downtown Minneapolis and I was working full-time and my husband was in beauty school mm-hmm. and you know when you work full-time in retail you don't get to plan your life no because the schedule is different every week mm-hmm. and you know, I was gigging a little bit at the time, um, but I also like wanted to change my situations where I like wanted to prepare for auditions. But the reality of my situation was, well, uh, in order to take auditions, I'd have to take off a of work. Mm-hmm. And if I took off a of work, I wouldn't make money. And I really needed to be able to pay my bills, but also taking auditions cost money. So much money. So I couldn't I couldn't afford to go to the audition. I couldn't afford to take the audition if I could afford to go. I couldn't mm-hmm. afford to take time off work. And then like, when was I supposed to practice? Right. Because I lived in an apartment and on the days when I worked uh, 11 to seven, you know, do I get up at 8 a.m. and practice in my apartment mm-hmm. at 8 a.m. for my neighbors? Or do I get home do I eat dinner or do I practice before 9 p.m.? You know? Yes. And it was this, and I began to like really, really hate my career choice for this reason because auditioning was so prohibitive. It was so cost prohibitive to be a human and a low income human and like try and and advance your your life Mm -hmm. in this field. And it was like, I hated looking at my horn because I felt so like, why didn't I quit when I had the chance or like, you know, why? But again, I kept coming back. Like I had to keep reminding myself, you don't do this for the money. Mm-hmm. You know that like money, ha- not having a lot of money makes everything tough. Yes. It makes everything tough. And what you are experiencing is not unique to music. You're just, a struggling millennial like (laughs) all of the other millennials on the planet (sighs) Mm -hmm. and I you know 
there was a period of time where I had to remind myself that every single day that my situation was not because of music. It was not because of music. And that music, if I wanted it to be part of my life at that point in time, I was going to have to work a little harder to keep it in my life. So I um, took every gig that I could. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were months that I would not have like a single full day off because I was just like filling up my time with everything that was thrown at me. Any, it didn't matter what paid. I just like, I needed to play. I wanted to play. And if I couldn't practice at home, then I had to have the horn on my face mm-hmm. and I had to figure out a way to like turn my gigs into practice sessions mm-hmm. like with like clear goals like okay I'm sitting down for this gig I'm here to do a job but also maybe I'll like also work on my sound mm-hmm. <laughs> or maybe I'll also be super mindful of my my articulation for this recording session or like because it was the only way that I could have any sort of like intentional practice was like on the job yes and s- slowly you know I went from like maintaining as a horn player to like gradually getting better mm-hmm. um and it was a slow and arduous and painful process and then COVID hit and you know the rest you know and here you know. are <laughs> um, you're doing the thing and then here and here we are you know <laughs> and COVID for me was was definitely who uh, time. <laughs> interesting terrifying mm-hmm. I lost my full-time job so yeah. uh against my will I had all the time to practice mm-hmm. and I actually used it because I told myself um you're gonna regret it <laughs> if you don't right you're really really gonna regret it if you don't because you've had so much time away from the horn mm-hmm out of necessity and now you literally have I was out of work for six months mm-hmm. and I was like if you if you don't use this you're an idiot and you deserve every bad thing that happens to you <laughs> <laughs> okay it might be a little harsh on yourself there but it's it's wild to me how similar our stories are in some of these ways um I don't know if you probably know this but when I finished my master's in Bloomington I wasn't sure what I was going to do and I was like, I'm just not sure if I'm cut out for this. I had gone from being a big fish in a small pond at my undergrad to being the tiniest little minnow at Indiana. And so I got a retail job and I was working full time and I was driving for Uber and Lyft on top of that. So I was working 60 plus hours a week, um, making all of that bank during Little Five. <laughs> the, the Indiana kids yes, will know what that little is. Five. Oh, Little Five. Um, so I was really, really lucky. And I'm going to give a shout out to my manager, Dave, wherever he is these days, where he was the um, the area manager of this this chain of stores that I worked at. And I by the time that I was out of school completely, I had worked my way up from like a part time, you know, sales associate to one of the managers of the store. And he was like, you know, if you want to practice in the back room, do it. I don't care. It's not going to bother anyone. I was like, are you sure? Like, this is your home base store and like, I'll be interrupting. He's like, no, 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 do it. So on days where I would open the store, the schedule was you had to open by, I think you had to be there by 930, open the store by 10. You'd get like an hour break for lunch and you'd leave at five, something in that range. So on those days, Mm -hmm. I'd get there at eight and I'd practice for an hour in the morning in the back room before anybody was in the mall. And then during my lunch break, I would make a bag of microwave popcorn. I got teased so much for that. Um, to the point where when I left the store, I was given like an air popcorn maker by the 
sales associates was amazing. Um, <laughs> they were, they were beautiful. So I would, you know, eat my little bag of popcorn really quickly, practice for like 45 minutes, um, continue my shift and then go home, eat a sandwich and practice for another hour. And that was weirdly some of the most regular practice I've ever had in my life because I had this schedule yeah. that I couldn't control. So it was, you know, here's why I have to make the best of. And then it was exhausting. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. when you're giving so much of yourself to your job, because I think like me, you, you don't want to, you know, do poorly at whatever we're doing. You know, we're trying to. Right. Like I always want to do well. a good job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So, so we're not going to slack off and do nothing at these other jobs that are not music related. And then to completely switch gears into that music world again and go, okay, here's what I'm working towards. Even if you're not seeing immediate payoff, that's the, that's the real right. challenge. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's crazy how, how similar that feels to me and i was really lucky for dave so thank you yeah. dave oh my gosh but yeah um so we've talked about half of the things i was planning on talking about already so this is very convenient um so i'm gonna switch slightly switch gears here a little bit um we've talked about some of the greatest challenges just in general of, of where you've gotten to in your career which for those who don't know micah is fully on faculty at depaul university i mean just really really doing the horn thing it's amazing um do you feel like you've experienced any hardships specifically based on your gender identity or um, any other demographic this is a really tough question um Mm -hmm. i was raised not really aware of my race Mm -hmm. um my i knew my dad's name was jose perez um and that's about all I knew. I knew he was Mexican. I knew uh, that Mexican people existed. Uh, I didn't really make the connection. My mom um, was white. My siblings are white. Uh, their father is white. Uh, my grandma and my aunt are white. <laughs> you know, so um, I think the first time that was a real wake a, awakening for me about my race and the role of my race in classical music the role of the color of my skin was when I was in Houston um, doing my little grad school audition tour. I was auditioning for Rice at the time and I had, I don't know, I was feeling bougie and I had booked like a week in Houston Mm -hmm. because I really also, you know, I wanted to get to know that the places where I could potentially be studying for the next however long. Um, So while I was in Houston, I snagged some matinee tickets to see the Houston Symphony play Mahler One. And it was February in Houston. So it was of course like a thousand degrees already. So I was wearing just like, you know, khaki shorts, polo shirt, um, and like shoes, <laughs> you know, just not, like not shoes. Not like a full winter know, getup they, like we do in Indiana. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they weren't like, they weren't like dress shoes or they weren't like ratty snake. They were just like shoes. Just shoes. <laughs> probably, probably like Sperry's or something. Um, and so I go pick up my tickets at Will Call, which student student price tickets were like ten dollars. By oh, the way, love that. I don't know what they are now, but if they're still ten dollars in Houston, like if you're a student, you need to go mm-hmm. snag them up and go watch the Houston Symphony. Absolutely. Um, so I picked up my tickets from Will Call, and I enter into the lobby, and there are people, and this is for like a 1 p.m. concert on like a Tuesday or something and I walk into the lobby and there are like women in ball gowns and 
men in tuxedos and I didn't see anybody dressed like me. But again, I'm a music student. I'm a, I was a full-time rat at this point and <laughs> I would show up to my university concerts like in like a hoodie and jeans and you know like dressing up fancy all of that like doesn't uh, enter the equation <laughs> no it had just like worn off for me at that point because like as a classical music student scholar if you will <laughs> like you know yes. that that fourth wall was she was gone she mm-hmm. was she was not there I knew I knew all about the people who play classical music and I can tell you ain't one of them fancy you know <laughs> <laughs> so I was not inclined to show up to any of these events as like a fancy person um but I was like dressed like appropriately for public you know um and I walk into the lobby and I just feel these eyes on me and then and then a woman looks at me and she I don't know if it was intended for me to hear but I heard her say have some respect (gasps) and a similar thing happened to Alyssa here at uh, Jacobs but um that just that just reminded me that she had a similar um oh my gosh experience um and I was like are you joking like you literally don't know anything about me you don't know that I'm like pursuing a career like Mm -hmm. this as a career like this is like like me like I don't know I'm I'm trying to think of of, of a metaphor but I'm just like this is I'm in I'm literally in my element you're a disciple of music is how I would describe it like that's you are yeah and nobody could have more respect (laughs) I'm being accused of like being disrespectful and I was so enraged Mm -hmm. by that I couldn't even I can't even tell you how the performance went because I was so mad. Mm-hmm. So mad that this woman who had who knew nothing about me took a look at me and I don't know if it was my skin color, if it was the way that I was dressed. It, it doesn't matter. No. No. And, and And people wonder why we have an elitism, you know, issue in classical music. I mean when the audiences themselves are almost turning people away at the door. She should have been thrilled there was a young person walking in the doors of the symphony. I mean, come on. <laughs> like, I, 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 I was just so, I was so stunned by that. Um, and it really like ignited something in me. Like I was like, are you kidding? And so I started to reflect on my own experience as a young person growing up and like finding the love for music and like what was I what did I have access to or what did what were my um beliefs about classical music before music school mm-hmm. well my beliefs about classical music were that they weren't for poor people and I was poor um that it wasn't for people who were it just wasn't for people like me you know mm-hmm. that's what I grew up believing about classical music I mean I didn't hear my first symphony um I mean the reason I heard my first symphony was it was um uh I think it was fifth grade fourth grade the 
Mustang Corral, Middletown Elementary <laughs> School choir. It might have been all the music classes. We took a field trip to Baltimore to watch the Baltimore Symphony play. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember thinking, like, this is just, like, not cool. But this is just, like, not my element. And so I, like, didn't allow myself to engage with it at all. Like, I didn't allow myself to enjoy it because, like, this isn't for me. What is it, you know? what what is this where am i this is stuffy and i'm a kid and and um and that really persisted until i got to college was auditioning for ensembles and was placed in the orchestra for the first time ever mm-hmm. 18 years old and i was like oh these are just like they're just like people <laughs> Mm-hmm. and then like my situation oh these are just like my friends these are just students but like members of the orchestra are just are just people mm-hmm. and being an audience member I'm just like watching people you know and, and there was this like realization that like oh it's not this like like the reality is not this like elitist uh it's not a religious at least ceremony, like, you know. Like, <laughs> well, yeah, and at least like internally, from the people making the music, mm-hmm. the people actually creating the the product, so to speak, are not the elitists. Mm-hmm. It's the marketing, right, of the product. It's the audience. It's the image. It's it's the access. Mm-hmm. It's the it's to... the status symbol of it all absolutely mm-hmm. and when um so that incident in houston and i was like this is an issue you know because by this point this was 2012 this was 2013 it was 2013 mm-hmm. like we all knew that by that point that our line of of our profession was in danger, is in danger, is per- mm-hmm. perpetually in danger, mm-hmm. declining ticket sales, no subscriptions. And yet you have people who are still gatekeeping. Mm-hmm. And it just like, it blew my mind. So I like kind of like went on a crusade about, like a personal crusade, crusade shouting from the rooftops. I mean, I don't feel like I've actually accomplished anything. But just like letting people know about the experience and about how it impacted me and like the ramifications of like attitudes like that in classical mm-hmm. music are literally killing the industry. Mm-hmm. Literally killing it. So where do you stand um, on the um, the dress code for musicians on stage? Do you have any thoughts? On- I think it's, it's so alienating. Mm-hmm. It's alienating for a number of reasons. Um, I want, I mean, it's like you compare pop audiences with classical music audiences, right? And what is the appeal for pop artists? Sometimes it's the case where you see yourself reflected in the performance on stage. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is you see a potential for yourself reflected in the performance on stage. In classical music, I mean, the tradition of the tuxes is the traditional garb of the help. Mm -hmm. 
for for anybody who doesn't know that's why orchestras wear tuxedos is because they were employees and that's how they were treated the help for whom mm-hmm. the rich and the wealthy and the elite so those are the, like the audiences or at least that's the image that is drawn to classical music because that's the tradition that is still being upheld hundreds of years after the conception of the, the orchestra right mm-hmm. it's 2023 right we have an audience crisis in classical music and people are still asking why mm-hmm. which is crazy <laughs> that people are still asking why when you can literally just walk into a concert hall mid-concert and just observe i mean your act of being there the simple act of walking in mid-concert like you could like deconstruct the scenario in so many different ways and get your why mm-hmm. um so I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is so what the what the attire should be mm-hmm. i don't want to be in the room making those fashion decisions um <laughs> But I know that, like, the tux and the tails, she ain't it. Mm-hmm. And in my like experience, that... the organizations that are most obsessed with the dress code tends to be the ones who treat the orchestra like the help themselves. So... Right. Yeah, sure. When people start remembering that we are here for the music, and the people on stage are the ones performing the music, and no shade to any of my conductor friends i have several but without us you're just somebody up there waving a stick <laughs> you know it's it's <laughs> it becomes a little bit more um humbling you know where you're like oh yeah maybe it's not all about this this um this idea that we are some rarefied sanctified hoity-toity event it shouldn't be that yeah it is just so untrue because you know musician will sit in the tux for two hours on stage playing for a bunch of people who make way more money than they'll ever see mm-hmm. and then go home and eat a peanut budget sandwich because that's all that's they have what we can afford through budget a week. <laughs> right you know and it's it's crazy and what's even more crazy is that this was brought to my attention uh, a couple of years ago but like it's crazy to think that how many people on that stage could actually afford a subscription to their own orchestra mm-hmm. of like of like good seats and that means you're wasting an entire audience space because how we're the ones performing it we love music so much i would love to be able to go buy a subscription to all the orchestras that i don't play in in this area you know i mean yeah that's what i would do with my friday nights when i'm not working but it's out of my budget absolutely and like that doesn't make any sense nope and then (laughs) back to the uh attire there's also the I mean, and this is something, so like back to part of your original question about gender identity. Mm-hmm. So I came out as non-binary in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, this was like, leaving my job in Mexico was like, boom, 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 right afterwards, because this was just like months that I had this realization, months after I left. And um, being in this career, immediately my thought was, what am I going to wear? Mm-hmm. What do I wear? on stage because I had like just learned that the source of my of so much of my personal discomfort and my inability to uh, function authentically in society was 
defined by the clothes I put on my body. Mm-hmm. And now I'm performing in, now I realize I'm performing in a very binary culture where you can either wear a tux or you can wear all black. Mm-hmm. And a tux meant you were a man and all black meant you were a woman. But like me, I feel like I am sometimes both, sometimes neither. What am I supposed to wear? Mm-hmm. What do I wear? And how many times have you ever seen the options in the dress code email from a gig described as option one or option two? Or is it always man, woman? There's no anything. <laughs> so recently... um it might have been with the Evansville Philharmonic that does option one, option two. Mm-hmm. But even with, so I have had conversations with orchestra managers about this. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm asking for permission to wear not one of the options, right. I usually go with all black mm-hmm. because I mean, just personally, if I'm going to be misgendered, I would be rather, I would rather be misgendered as uh, a woman. But like, even that sentence, like, oh, if I'm going to be misgendered, I would rather be misgendered as, that's like Ideally, so shitty to have to it like. Be, yeah, we don't say. want you to be misgendered at all. <laughs> you just want to exist. Like, and, like, honestly, like my gender doesn't matter on stage. So like, why do I have to make a statement of my gender by wearing a tux or all black? Right. Um, why does there need to be a visual representation of this, this false binary that we're putting I'm out just the world. The French horn. Right. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so when I ask personnel managers for permission to wear all black, or sometimes I'll do like a modified tux with like a black shirt instead of a white shirt, just to like, because it's really important that you play from an authentic place. And I think people don't understand the impact on your music that playing from an authentic place has. Mm-hmm. You know, and when I started to find myself in environments where I was free to play from an authentic place, I'm a different player. Mm-hmm. So asking for permission, and they and they and then they still they'll they'll tell you they tell me to my face, oh that's fine, like of course wear whatever wear whatever you're comfortable in. Mm-hmm. But then in the email, they still say men, tux, women, all black. Right. And I'm like, you've just missed the whole point of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Because, like, I was gonna wear whatever made me comfortable. And as long as it's within the visual aesthetics of the orchestra, like, what are you gonna, what are you gonna not have a, a third horn, a fourth horn? Because my uh, genetic makeup does not align with your pre prescribed uh, dress code. Like, I mean, okay. You're right. That's like, fine. Good luck with that. <laughs> sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's never that's never happened because, you know, I really do think people are better than we assume that they are. Um, but, but that's like a constant battle that I have to fight, and like, fight, especially as a freelancer, so much of it is politics, and I am constantly hyper aware of when I am being actively discriminated against or when I am in um, danger of being discriminated against. Mm-hmm. And I like change myself sure. for those situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
there are several instances i you know and i i'm not going to name organizations or name names but there have been several instances where i have been um either not hired or treated differently or mm-hmm. because i decided to wear makeup for a week or because i decided to be vocal about pronoun usage on facebook or you know and it's it's like actively happening and there are deniers who say oh no that's not the reason okay we we know we know the real reason like i don't need you to gaslight me thanks um but it's it's a problem and and you know and i would love to live in a perfect world where gender doesn't matter mm-hmm. and gender expression doesn't matter but everything has become so polarized and politicized and mm-hmm. i don't understand why it why it matters so much that i feel comfortable in my own skin right like why does it matter it should only matter to the extent that you should want people to feel comfortable mm-hmm and it really sucks because it means your whole existence in these orchestras is like you're forced into this role of having to be an advocate for yourself at any given moment i mean it's gotta and it be is exhausting. exhausting yeah and sometimes i don't even fight the fight mm-hmm. sometimes i'm so tired that i just put on the damn tugs right or you know or i have reached a point where i'm like i'm over correcting people who misgender me because it's not worth my energy right you know and you don't ever get to live free of that that's just going on every moment of you being a musician i mean absolutely you know and i and i realized like my resignation for being misgendered is is a privilege because there are some people that it is life-threatening yeah and and i'm fortunate that that it's not life-threatening for me um but I just think about how exhausting it is for me, for someone who is, you know, has a, ra- a relatively mild case of gender dysphoria with, with respect to being misgendered. How exhausting must it be to someone who has severe gender dysphoria? Mm-hmm. And, you know, when they're misgendered, they feel like they want to take their own lives. Like, I just like, I'm exhausted and I cannot, I just cannot imagine how exhausting it is for for some some other people who it affects much more much more mm-hmm. deeply um and i think that's where it's on us us excluding you here who are not experiencing that same you know um pressures and and same struggles to really try and ease the burden when we can and also be the voices and say, hey, you know, it doesn't have to take somebody who is, you know, non-gender conforming to say to a contractor, hey, your dress code policy is not inclusive. You know, that's something that anybody could reach out. And the more of us who do so and who put, you know, a foot down, eventually, I have to hope that we will outnumber the people who are actively trying to keep it the status quo. So this is my call out to anybody who feels like they have a modicum of power and wants to use it for something good. Talk to your contractors, talk to your people in their symphonies and see if you can't help our, our friends and colleagues who just want to wear what they want to wear to a concert. It shouldn't be that deep. So. And it's not like I want to show up in red. You know? <laughs> well, I mean, that'd be fine, but right. We're not asking Actually, for much here. <laughs> the Richmond Symphony Orchestra in Virginia just changed their... Mm-hmm. attire or at least i just noticed that they changed their attire and i think it's really cool um they 
uh, I mean, it's still like um, within the the framework of like a tux, but like they've added color and love that. And something about like just like adding the color changes the perception. Mm-hmm. I think it brings uh, a little joy back. We need to have a little absolutely. joy on stage. You know? That's all. That's all we're asking for. Oh right, just a, just a little bit of happiness in this <laughs> in this hellscape we call planet Earth. So, you know, I, I've raked you over the coals with these heavy hitter questions. So please forgive me. I'll I'll rapid fire some of the lighter fun ones at you now. So, who is your favorite composer besides yourself? It could be you, but who's your favorite composer? <laughs> oh my God, um, I love Stravinsky. He ah. was a quirky, quirky man. He. Mm-hmm is not known for telling the truth about himself or his compositions. (laughs) Oh, what composer was though? (laughs) Right. I just love, I just love his music. I think it is, it, and and maybe it's because I'm a little new. I still consider myself a little, a little new to music, even though I'm, it's been my (laughs) career. Um, I just, I just find, I just love his ideas. His ideas, when I hear music of his, I'm like, people are still not really doing that. Mm-hmm. like people are doing things that are like Stravinsky adjacent right but like especially his later works I think there's just so wacky and I'm not going <laughs> to use the word brilliant because I don't hear a worship but I just I enjoy them a lot I, think, I just think they're super fun I love I love Stravinsky I'm a huge Stravinsky fan and favorite Stravinsky work oh um Symphony of Psalms oh that's a good one incredible piece wicked first horn part i'm not biased at all oh, brutal <laughs> but really fantastic piece of music really wonderful mm-hmm. i love that <laughs> um what do you do for fun outside of music uh music <laughs> <laughs> more music I, okay. I see plants behind you are you a plant person okay i'm a <laughs> my husband and i are new plant gays i say new because it's been within like the last two years Mm -hmm. um we're just gays who own plants Um, (laughs) and it's kind of an addiction i would give you a plant tour um i counted them the other day we have 27 wow i thought i was doing well with my like six which are only partially dead so (laughs) that's great you know you're ahead of the curve that means they're partially alive yeah Yeah. (laughs) partially alive and better than zero of them right um I love my plants. I really love to read. Um, mm-hmm. I really like contemporary fiction because I'm annoying like that. I. What are you reading right now? Um. Oh God. So I'm listening to a lot of audiobooks right now, which I consider that mm-hmm. reading. Don't ask. Me. No, that counts. Like listening to an audiobook is the same. I'm listening to this book called Night Crawling by mm-hmm. Layla Motley. And it is dark and visceral and beautiful and it is um just go listen to it or go read about it i don't want to <laughs> yeah. i don't want to spoil it for you but yeah no spoilers it's i'm about halfway through right now and it is it's a lot but it's beautifully written beautifully narrated um but i yeah i love reading contemporary fiction um i like reading sci-fi i like reading horror unfortunately mm-hmm. i'm a big stephen king fan like full <laughs> like awareness that like stephen king and his endings baby we gotta talk 
we gotta talk about those endings <laughs> we like, just need to have a little mini stephen king intervention <laughs> like please <laughs> spoiler alert his book outsider is thrilling and exciting and dark and gross and horrifying and the ending i was like are you joking me holly give me vanquishes the demon by hitting him with her purse are you joking <laughs> stop it I <laughs> that wish can't be real i was making oh, that up no i wish i could shake my monitor by how angry it makes me because this was a book that i could not put down it was so good and thankfully hbo took the show and they ran with it and they made it so much better the ending so much better thank god oh my god i was i read that and i was like i quit life (laughs) never like i'm done anything ever again ruined books uh so that's what i do for fun love that oh my gosh well micah we have come to the end i cannot even begin to tell you how much i appreciate coming on um we're gonna have to do a part two because we didn't even dive into the nitty-gritty of how you compose and then your process with that so we'll just do another episode sometime when we're free sure Um, i'd love to because i could just keep talking to you for like three more hours um yeah so everyone thank you for listening um we'll be back in a couple weeks with another new episode uh thanks for joining us Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) Bye. Bye. This has been Represent the Podcast. For more episodes, you can find us at Spotify and Apple Podcasts or on my website, www.katiebethmckinney.com. If you liked what you heard today, please rate us five stars or leave a review. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.